Hi, friend, and welcome to Grab Your Light, the podcast, a podcast for young women of color who are trying to navigate a breakup, divorce, or co-parenting relationship with wisdom and grace, and all while maintaining their mental and emotional well-being. I'm Lauren, your host, and while I am no expert, I have been through it, and so now I'm here to walk you through it. So let's talk about it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a new episode of Grab Your Light, the podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for listening, for following, for subscribing. Um, Thank you. Thank you for, for spending a little time with me today. And if you are a repeat listener, then welcome back. I hope that you love this episode as much as you have loved the others. So in continuing on with this month's theme about the emotions we feel in the midst of separation, divorce, and even some breakups, today I want to talk about embarrassment, Um, shame, and self-esteem. The three are different emotions, but I find that for me, they tend to function kind of interchangeably or they're all kind of connected. So that's why I'm mentioning all three. And so let's just dive right in because this one is a meaty one and I have a couple tips. So we'll just get into it. So in thinking of embarrassment, You know, I felt embarrassed all the time during my separation, all the time. Whenever I had to mention my marital status to someone or mention my co-parenting arrangement, you know, whenever I was out and about with my daughter and it was just us or whenever I went somewhere by myself that I typically would go with my ex, you know, I would feel embarrassed and I would feel that because in my mind, I just knew that everyone was looking at me and thinking that I make poor decisions or rash decisions, that I wasn't able to be a good wife or life partner. You know, maybe they thought I didn't know how to pick a husband. Maybe they were thinking that I didn't prioritize my daughter's well-being over my own you know, or maybe that I was even hiding some, you know, huge problem with myself that would cause a man to leave me. I was constantly thinking of these things. I was constantly self-conscious. I wouldn't want to go certain places where people who I believed thought these things would be. And while no one I know said these things or even anything like them to my face, (laughs) you know, people are very comfortable giving their unsolicited opinions of you and your life, as well as saying very mean things behind your back. And so sometimes it just seemed easier to avoid people altogether. And I'm already an introvert. So avoiding people seemed like a really, really great option, a very easy option. And I think during that time, you know, the initial, I think like six to nine months, I think my introversion even increased, you know, and that that's right on par with the stages of grief, because we know that often when you're grieving, you isolate. And it was during this point of accepting that I was getting divorced 
and now feeling embarrassed by that, that I wanted to isolate myself, you know, because I didn't want to give people any more time or reason to think these negative things about me. And I just didn't want to think about people thinking these things. So in my mind, it was if I'm out of their sight, I'm out of their mind. And if they're out of my sight, I'm out of their mind. Um, and so I, I started to isolate. I found myself just going to work, going to church, going to my parents' house. And when I was at work or at church, I kept to myself, you know, but I've been depressed before, like actually depressed, not like, oh, I'm having a bad day. I'm so depressed. We like to throw that word around very loosely. Uh, but in college, I had a like three month span of time where I just was not myself and I isolated. And I've learned with the help of therapists that usually my first step or warning sign of depression is isolation. Once I isolate, I'm only going to wallow in my negative feelings, causing them to increase and then falling into what I call a deep, dark hole of despair. And so that leads me to tip number one, which is do not isolate. Do not isolate. It's very tempting to do so, right? To just avoid people, their words, their thoughts, their looks. Just avoid them all, right? And also kind of avoid the truth of what's really going on and avoid having to actually work through those feelings. We just isolate and we avoid. So that is the tip. Do not isolate. And just as I'm telling you this, my therapist told me that as well. Um, she told, she encouraged me not to isolate. And then my parents who are super outgoing, self-assured people, you know, they constantly and lovingly reminded me that, you know, we don't care what people think of us, or at least we shouldn't, right? My mom would always say, the people who know and love you know what happened, know who you are, and will never leave you. And that's all that matters, right? The people who know and love you know what happened, know who you are, and will not leave you. So slowly, day by day, I begin to, you know, step foot out of the house for more than just work church and my parents. You know, I began to stride into places that I was previously avoiding and I do it step by step, but I did do it. And then I eventually, you know, okay, sure. I'll go to the movies with you. Okay, great. Yes. I'll come to dinner. Oh, you're having a party. Okay, cool. I found one-on-one -on -one events to be easier, you know, lunch, drinks, um, shopping. I found those things to be easier. I found gatherings to be a bit harder, uh, especially gatherings where it was a lot of people that I knew. So I saved those to the end. But if you're the opposite, you know, perhaps you're thinking at a bigger gathering, you can just fly under the radar, then go for it. Whatever works for you, just do not isolate. And I'm going to jump into tip number two, since we're here, and it is to fake it till you make it. Okay. You're going to go to these events, either one-on-one -on -one or in a group setting. And I'm not saying to put on this whole facade because nothing's worse than 
um, you know, pretending or perpetrating to be something that you're not. But there is something to sort of convincing yourself to be happy. So for me, I I knew that I was going to start making myself go places and I didn't want to be anxious about what I might encounter, right? Because I'm type A, I'm a control freak. I get anxious when I don't quite know what's going to happen. And so for me, faking it till I made it was easier to do if I had sort of a little armor at the ready, right? So I developed scripted answers to questions I thought people might ask me so that I didn't feel caught off guard or ambushed. Uh, For example, my favorite one-liner became, oh, he decided he didn't want to be my husband anymore. How are you today? And I'd say it so nonchalantly and so confidently that the person wouldn't know what else to say. And while they floundered about for a response, I would just happily walk off. You know, if I really liked them, I would change the subject. And that became a way for me to take control of the situation so that I could, you know, have a little bit more confidence in it and to, you know, make it feel a little less scary, make it feel a little less daunting and minimize some of my negative feelings like embarrassment or shame or confusion or any of those, right? So that worked for me. That doesn't have to be your go-to, you know, but definitely think of, okay, I'm going to go to this dinner and what am I going to do if this negative feeling arises? If I start thinking this person is thinking X, Y, Z about me, it helps. It helps with the faking it till we make it because then you can say that response or tackle that situation as though you saw it coming because you did. And with that comes a little bit more confidence, right? Okay. Um, And then as time progressed and I was able to make peace with everything that was going on and, um, you know, what I was experiencing and the role that I played in it, it less and less kept people's opinions from meaning very much to me. So ultimately, this whole blog and podcast can be summed up with sort of letting time do its thing um, and taking the high road, right? Because I feel like I say both of those things in every episode, but really as time progresses, you're going to feel better about where you are, what you're doing and the past. And that makes the negative feelings have a little less power and it lets other people uh, penetrate you less, (laughs) penetrate you like verbally, you know? This is a PG-13 podcast. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, the things they say will bother you less as time progresses and as you really confidently come to terms with what has happened. So that was tip number two, to fake it till you make it. And then, you know, moving forward from sort of embarrassment and more into Um, self-doubt, which I think the two are linked. So as time progressed, the self-consciousness and the embarrassment that I felt in the beginning, they re-emerged, but in a very different scenario and in a way that I completely did not expect. So, you know, it's one sort of thing to close the chapter of my marriage 
and create a clean slate for dating, right? So ending a marriage is one task, a hard task, but one task, one phase of a a relationship ending. But then preparing for dating is a whole other task and a whole other phase to a relationship ending, to one relationship ending. And for me, that is when I felt a a resurgence of self-doubt and shame, I think. And really, it was all me. Like, it was nothing anyone else was doing. It was no external factors that were contributing to this. It was simply the narrative I had created in my head was giving rise to these negative feelings. So, like, for me, dating was all about finding my next life partner, the person I'm going to live with, parent with, grow with, merge my life with. And, you know, I'm, I'd like to think I'm pretty realistic. And so this means that this would be the person who would also need to navigate the baggage created by my divorce and co-parenting relationship. That's a big role, you guys. I don't know, in my mind, it's a big role to take on and a very big choice for me to make. And that paralyzed me. You know, I I can sometimes be a little indecisive, but having to make such a life altering decision like picking a life partner made me so nervous because in my mind, I'd already messed up this decision before. You know, I had this decision to make in picking my ex-husband and look how that turned out, right? I ignored any yellow or red flags that provided any early indication that this relationship was maybe not the best fit. Knowing that, how on earth was I supposed to pick a new partner? I just, I couldn't fathom it. It was, it, it bothered me greatly, we'll say. You know, I was constantly asking myself, what am I supposed to look for that I didn't look for the first time? What red flags did I think were actually green flags? What boundaries was I unaware of and therefore failed to set in that first marriage? Or, you know, what did it turn out I needed in a relationship that I didn't get? Or how am I supposed to express those needs in a healthy manner? How do I need to be loved? What should have been my non-negotiables? You guys get what I'm saying? Like I had so many big questions that I felt needed to be answered so that I didn't make a bad choice or a wrong choice again. Those questions and many more swirled through my mind, especially when I spotted a good looking man. You know, I'd get all excited for a second at the prospect of talking to him and giving him my number. And then immediately I would question if he's the one, I have quotation marks here, the one. And if I'd even know how to spot it if he were, right? And so one therapy session, I mentioned that to my therapist, like, how am I supposed to date when clearly my picker is off? And she let me go on with that thought and she listened patiently. And when I was done sort of spiraling and freaking out and speaking unkindly to and about myself, she responded, 
Your picker isn't off. You just don't listen to it. <laughs> Mind blown. We then talked about yellow or red flags I'd noticed in my dating relationship with my ex-husband and yellow or red flags I'd noticed in men I'd met since him. And we carefully went through each and every one and we looked at the words and behaviors exhibited by these men that tipped me off to our incompatibility. Then we looked at how I responded to them and usually I responded by ignoring them Um, explaining them away or forcing the man to have an in-depth and emotional conversation about it, which never works, by the way, never. And we realized my issue was more not knowing how to demand better or not feeling worthy enough to demand better. And that takes us to the next tip, which is to get to the root cause of the embarrassment, the shame, the guilt, the self-doubt, any of those, any of that little bubble of emotions to get to the root cause of it. For me, as I just kind of touched on, the root cause was a feeling of um, not feeling worthy, right? Not feeling worthy perhaps of a meaningful relationship. You know, not feeling worthy of a healthy relationship or even for some, it might even be not feeling worthy of love, you know, not feeling worthy to stand up for yourself, to be heard, to be validated, to be treated well. This feeling of of self-worth was at the root cause for me. And I've heard from other women, it's at their root cause too. And the the feeling of worth is such a deep and complicated and vulnerable feeling that often comes after a divorce. It even comes after some long-term relationships end, but I know that it is common after a divorce. And For me, initially, this not feeling worthy took the shape of shame and not being able to choose a life partner correctly because of the failure of my marriage. But with time and therapy, I was able to more accurately interpret that shame into a lack of confidence in walking away from things and men that don't serve me, right? I started to dig a little deeper in my life and noticed it wasn't just men It was just things in general, you know, being so selfless that it was no problem at all for me to consider another person, their feelings, their needs. But I struggled to consider my own. And even when I did consider them, I then struggled to demand better or walk away or establish a boundary. Right. And some of that, I think, is because we're not usually taught how to establish boundaries. Um, And so that is something that at the ripe age of 35, I have recently learned, you know, how to demand better, how to demand um, your worth, how to assert your worth, how to require that people treat you the way you want to be treated, that people give you the things you want to have and 
even more deeply that you go out and get the things that you want because you deserve to have them, right? And that applies to relationships, that applies to materialistic things, that applies to experiences, that applies to our jobs. It just applies to every aspect of our lives. And so when I say get to the root cause, I would wager for anybody struggling with worth, self-worth after a divorce, that this has shown up in other ways in your lives. And the divorce is just kind of bringing it to the forefront. And it's the very obvious reason for it. But dig a little deeper. You probably, you know, I know we always joke about how our therapists blame everything on our moms. (laughs) Mine doesn't blame it on my mom. Mom, you're good. But they do start with childhood and often it was something small, something very tiny in childhood that isn't making or breaking you, but that planted a little seed of something. And then as life progressed, that seed just got watered and watered and watered. And then something like a divorce, they just dump a whole gallon of water, sit it out in perfect sunlight and boom, you know, it has now grown into this full force thing. And so Dig a little deeper to figure out when that seed was planted and what has watered it. And then you'll be able to feel better about who you are and what you want and how you're going to achieve that and what you're going to do with the people and circumstances that interfere with what you want. That's really the key, right? Um, I'm sorry, that felt big. Like I feel like I should pause for effect because that felt huge. I have notes that I read and that one was just off the top of my mind because literally this is what my therapist and I are working through like right now, which is also why this episode is airing late. Sorry guys, because honestly, I just did not want to tackle it. But I think that the self-worth thing, the embarrassment thing, the self-doubt are feelings that will kind of constantly reemerge if we don't resolve them the way that we should in a healthy, comprehensive manner. And so here I am, you know, four years after four or five years after my marriage has ended and still resolving the the self-worth thing. So that was a little tangent. But now we're going to move on to the last tip, which is to move forward. So when we're feeling embarrassment, shame, self-doubt, a lack of self-worth, all those things, um, I mentioned earlier, sometimes we can feel a little paralyzed. You know, we it can keep us from acting. It can keep us from moving. And so I don't want that to happen. The What we need to do is to continue to move forward, even if they're baby steps, just even an inch, just move forward. It will gain momentum And you'll move further, you'll move quicker, you'll take longer steps, and you'll be seeing progress. Do not feel embarrassed or ashamed because your marriage did not work out. Do not feel embarrassed or ashamed because your relationship did not work out. Whether you wanted it to end or not, whether it's good that it ended or not, whether they were your soulmate, twin flame, all the other great words or not, it has happened. The relationship has ended. 
We accept it, we grieve it, and then we move forward. That is what we should do in that order. Accept it, grieve it, and move forward. Do not, my friends, do not let embarrassment or shame ruin your moving forward. Do not let these feelings keep you stuck. Do not let these feelings keep you from living the life you so want to live. Okay? Accept it. Grieve it. Go get that life. Right? Right. And this is not something that will happen over a week, over a month, over a year. Right? It will take time. Just stay focused on the life you want to live. And you will make steady progress there. Oh, I feel like that means we should have an episode on like envisioning the life we want to live. Right? Okay. Making a note to myself. Because really that's what we need to do. Once you accept it, once you grieve it, then you need to know, okay, my life is no longer picture A. What do I want picture B to look like? Once you know what you want it to look like, then you make progress towards it. And that is literally all you can do. It's just make progress towards a goal, make progress towards a vision, make progress towards a dream, right? I hope that if you are experiencing any of these emotions, you are able to work through what they're really telling you. You're able to find peace and contentment, and then you're able to move forward. Okay, so that is it. Hopefully that made sense. I think it it felt a little all over the place, but also like it was cohesive, if that's possible. So thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of Grab Your Light, the podcast. Please feel free to follow or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, to leave a review, or to follow the podcast on Instagram. Until the next episode, have a great day, week, or month. Bye.